I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, and welcome to episode 16, T.E. Lawrence and the Gorilla Mind, part 3, in which we will be discussing Lawrence in particular and others not so particular when it comes to eccentricity and unconventional thought in warfare. A little bit of housekeeping. This will be the first podcast that I've issued since the start in September, which I'm late. Yes, I'm late by about a day. I was overwhelmed by a number of events in the past fortnight, among which was every year I take a professional shooting course with my children, my boys, and uh, we go, we have a private course here in Arizona with Bob Keller of Gamma Resolutions. Uh, that man challenges us. He has revolutionized our shooting with some rather simple concepts, but through repetition and mastery, we're much better rifle and pistol shooters when, than we ever were. So we try to take one professional course together a year at least, and it's a great time to bond with my sons. The other thing I want to talk about was, of course, Mother's Day. I hope everybody uh, used the opportunity to thank that most important person in all of our lives. If I haven't shared it with you, I will share it with you now. I have a wonderful wife of over three decades, and we have five wonderful grown children, 25 to 35, three sons, two daughters. Love them all, all home-educated, all homegrown, and all successful, and accepting my youngest son, who will get married this fall, at which I will officiate. I will have officiated at four of the five children's weddings, and I am uh, very proud of being able to do that. Uh, I have five grandchildren, and all of my children are just squared away. Of course, you can expect any dad to brag about something like that. So if you want to get in touch with me with comments or questions or recommendations for future episodes, you can reach me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. So I wanted to, again, thank all my listeners, I've, uh, I've gotten a tremendous amount of, of support. I appreciate the time people put in when, uh, when people uh, post me as one of their favorite podcasters. I do have a small, tiny request, and that would be that if you guys could leave a review, it could be one star, five star, four star, whatever the case may be, with some narrative, that would be very helpful to me, and I would be obliged. And with that, this is a military history podcast. It's an irregular warfare podcast, but it doesn't mean that I don't have a, um, a modest mastery of conventional warfare. Having that modest mastery of conventional warfare and an almost insatiable curiosity of all things military and military history throughout the ages, I have had these existential questions on occasion. Like one of the questions was the Germans probably one of the finest fighting formations since the Romans and their fall in the 4th century and the Roman legions. Nothing really comes close. Now, that was a conceit I subscribed to until the past two years. 
I've gone through something of a, uh, as John Cleese would say, a renaissance in my thinking, in which as much as I hate commies and as much as I hate the USSR, on a yearly basis, when I go to the Military Operations Research Society, at which I am a chair of one of the working groups, I am able to give presentations. One of the presentations that I give is a tutorial every year on anti-fragility, in which I talk about anti-fragility, systems engineering, and in the larger context, how embracing anti-fragility will take us beyond hardening and resiliency and weapon systems, and I think bring us to the next step and being able to survive and maybe even win a conflict, which, of course, the U.S. hasn't done since 1945. In there, I use the Soviet Union and its armed forces as a, oh, I'd hate to use the word textbook example, but a sterling or stellar example of learning organizations and the evolution of what is arguably an incredibly poor performance with Barbarossa, launched in June 1941, Hitler's massive invasion of the Soviet Union, in which they thought that they would conduct a blitzkrieg, as they had with all the other nations in Western Europe, except this time they're pointed east into Asia, and they want to best the Bolshevik foe. But they discover, much to their chagrin, that that doesn't happen. Blitzkrieg doesn't happen. It becomes positional warfare, and they don't have the greatest strategic mindset going into this conflict, nor have they done their homework in the logistical realm. And this turns around and bites them in a way that two books I recommend, which is by David Stahel, who has come to me as a uh, recommendation, Australian historian who's done some tremendous primary and secondary source work. And it is his conceit, his contention, that in June to September 1941, the Germans lost the war, and it took them four years to die. He makes a very convincing case, and uh, he writes extraordinarily well. He is deeply read. He is widely read. I recommend his book on Operation Barbarossa, followed by his book on Kiev in 1941. And that led me to a discussion with a friend of mine, and that friend turned me on to a colleague of his who turned me on to a book called Faustian Bargain by Ian Ona Johnson. One of the mysteries to me when it comes to World War II, one can call it the war to save Joseph Stalin, is how the heck did the, uh, did the, did the Russians by 1943 turn the tide, not turn tail, and actually become this absolutely effective war-fighting behemoth from about 19, late 1942 to 1945, besting the Germans in this case. How, how did that happen? Because I've always thought, okay, so Hitler comes into power in 1933, and over six years, and by the way, during that six years, they're experimenting, the Luftwaffe, for instance, and, and fighting formations and tactics, techniques, and procedures during the Spanish Civil War as a, uh, a live experimental lab for them to use. Can in six years, under Hitler's tutelage, how could they possibly create this conflict engine, the Wehrmacht, the SS, all the other associated modalities in the German army, and pretty much in, a, in, a, in the span of under a year and a half, conquer all of Western Europe, from the north to the south, all of Western Europe? Well, 
Mr. Johnson makes a very interesting point in Faustian Bargain where he talks about an almost renegade, if not shadow operation that was going on in the Reichswehr and the Wehrmacht at the time from 1922 on, where since the, the Versailles Treaty indicated that, nope, Germans, you are limited in, in, in flying, you are limited in the size of your air force, your army. They had a drug deal on the side with the Soviets in which they had a number of German-occupied bases on Soviet soil in which they trained, conducted experimentation on a minor and mass scale. And from that, the Soviets and the Russians, I think, were able to emulate some of the things the Germans did well and maybe as reflected from 1943 to 1945, become a learning organization that was logistically capable, thanks in large part to the West. So that book is called Faustian Bargain by Ian Ona Johnson. I recommend all three of these books. I, I really like what Stahel's done, the Australian author that I just mentioned, concerning the German loss on the Eastern Front in 1941 and 1942. Highly recommend those books. I will recommend more. And uh, any questions, you know where to reach me. So let's get into it. So I've been covering T.E. Lawrence, my podcast, and I could take as long as I want. So I thought that I would start entertaining his military campaigns now, but I came up with a better idea. And in the next episode, I will be talking about his early campaigns and in follow-on episode or episodes we will lead up to his conclusion in 1918, where he bests the Turks, rides victoriously into Damascus, and pretty much, I wouldn't say unwittingly, but reluctantly, enables the British and the French to take very large pieces out of the Middle East and create the problems that we suffer through today. So with that, let's get started. So what's the difference between eccentricity and unconventional when it comes to the military? Eccentricity would be looking at things through a different lens, looking at things in a way that others may not, I, to your advantage. Unconventional would be, of course, unconventional is asymmetric warfare, irregular warfare, the entire span of all human behavior and operations in conflict zones across the board from conventional to irregular warfare operations. Uh, some would call that unconventional. Of course they would. So unconventional can be a synonym for asymmetric or regular warfare. There's no doubt. But in this case, we are going to tease out that word to mean those who aren't quite thinking the way the orthodoxy thinks in larger military establishments, whether those are national military establishments or maybe allied and coalition military establishments. What we all know is that the larger a bureaucracy gets, the more staid, sclerotic, arthritic it becomes, resistant to cultural change, resistant to change in the ways that it's done things so often. There is that tired old phrase that all of today's contemporary generals are always fighting the last war. A lot of truth to that. So the unconventional thinker is the one who thinks out of the box and says, well... How can we do this in a fashion where maybe we shed less blood? Maybe we shed less treasure? Maybe we use what Liddell, Bass, Liddell Hart would call the indirect approach. Let's not do these head-on kamikaze attacks or these 
head-on bonsai attacks or these head-on Russian attacks that you saw in 1941 and 1942 when Barbarossa first launched and what you saw in Korea with human wave attacks. Let's do an indirect approach. Uh, probably the best contemporary example of that indirect approach that Basil Liddellhart championed and probably stole or lifted from somebody else is what happened during the Gulf War in 1991, in which instead of taking on the enemy at the front, well, on occasions the enemy was taken at the front, but they were also taken and consumed in the flanks and the rear. Now, of course, one finds throughout the history of warfare going out millennia that if you happen to outflank an enemy or you happen to get in the rear of the enemy, that causes and sows so much confusion and mayhem that collapsing that enemy may not be so hard to do. Like when you had the numerically inferior forces at the Battle of Cannae in BC in Rome, where Rome lost, I think, five legions on that day and maybe as many as 60,000 dead. A lot of those people were dead as a result of their lungs filling with dust, and some of them died on their feet because they were closed so compactly together because of the wing orientation that Hannibal used to take them out, that he surrounded them, consumed them, move in, and it just so happened to be one of those classical routes that every commander, even up to the modern day, wants his own Kenne. So one can say that that's sort of an unconventional approach. For instance, one thing the British were very good at was code-breaking during World War II. They were very good at deception operations. When you look at men like Simon Gubbins with the, the um, SOE, the Special Operations Executive, where Churchill established what he referred to as his Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, everything ranging from exploding bats to uh, E&E, which is uh, evasion and escape aids for prisoners of war who managed to escape, all the way to the Jedbergs, all the way to putting folks behind enemy lines, parachuting them in. What happened in Serbia and Yugoslavia during World War II, the, the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, which was the U.S. corollary to the Special Operations Executive under Gubbins and company working for Churchill, managed to do a lot of really extraordinary things. Now, what I find really interesting about that is that here you had guys... We've all heard of Wild Bill Donovan with the OSS. Maybe I'll even do an episode on him along with the SOE in the future because there's a lot of really interesting stuff that they did. Is They did take not only an unconventional mindset, but the British especially were able to employ, harness, and really leverage their eccentrics. So a slight pause here. Why does the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force and all the services, for the most part, not shelter eccentrics, not encourage eccentrics in their military? It's, it, it, and these are all suppositions that I have. America has a very industrialized military. America has a very second-generation, a couple to a third-generation warfare complex in the way it does its business. It has a very mature and probably one of the most extraordinary logistical enterprises for any military in the history of mankind. And we all know that the, the amateur worries about tactics and the professional worries about logistics 
Exhibit A is What Happened to the Germans from June to September 1941 in Operation Barbarossa, if you want to see an exemplar of that very idea. Now, Thomas Kuhn, in 1962, wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Now, people commonly believe that science travels in a more or less straight line from ignorance to knowledge by collecting facts about the world. Since a revolution, by definition, gets rid of old knowledge, there seems to be a contradiction between the ideas of scientific revolutions and scientific progress. Revolution would seem to be a step backwards. The structure of scientific revolutions resolves this conflict by changing the way we think about it. Much like species evolve, science changes, adapts, and specializes to fit the times. Now, he doesn't say this explicitly, but it's something that one can infer from his writing. It is the old Turks, the old guard, the old folks, the gray beards, who happened to be the protectors of the paradigm at the time. And when new guys come around on the block, like Colonel John Boyd, sorry, laser pig, Colonel John Boyd and the U.S. Uh, armed Forces, and uh, even Patton during World War II, even Pershing during World War I, even Nathan Bedford Forrest during the American Civil War, even going back to the first American Revolution, where I don't think that Washington was the best commander. I happen to think that Benedict Arnold was probably the most capable commander on either side during that entire conflict, and we all know what, ha what happened with him. We know what happened with Daniel Green and the... And the um, the mountain boys and such, these were innovators, sort of like the Swamp Fox, which was portrayed very poorly in a movie called The Patriot with Mel Gibson, which I recommend for fun, but it is rather ahistorical, but it gets the narrative revved up, and, it, and, it, and it's not as uh, sloppy as real life can be. So watching The Patriot is fun, but don't think it's history. Now, what we find is that there are things called revolutions in military affairs, RMAs, uh, the stirrup is an example of a revolution in military affairs. The ability to only fight against combatants and able to reduce cycle time and channel all your martial horsepower against other martial horsepower instead of the collateral damage and mischief that happens when, when civilians are engaged. But we find that much like what Thomas Kuhn was talking about with scientific revolutions, when it comes to revolutions in military affairs, most flag officers in any army on planet Earth, east or west, have to be dragged, kicking and screaming, into the, the present day and the future, especially if it's changing the way war is occurring. If one looks, for instance, in the fall of, of 2020, in the, um, the battle between Azerbaijan and Armenia, and, what, and I urge all of my listeners to take a look at that conflict. That conflict will be looked back upon 100 years from now, and they'll say that was a seminal change, maybe even a revolution in military affairs, and that centered on a place called Nagorno-Karabakh. I'm not going to go into it for the sake of brevity in, in this particular episode, but I recommend that my listeners take a look at that. So let's look at some of these personalities that may be unconventional, but they're very eccentric. Now, of course, T. Lawrence. What what could be, who could be more eccentric in, in the public mind and in, in the in in what is perceived as very public history, in the twentieth and twenty first century, as this enigmatic, 
colorful, deeply intelligent, and philosophically conflicted man who was so deep and thick in a philosophical sense. So he's not the only eccentric, but but you find that are eccentrics tolerated in the United States Armed Forces? Not so much. I welcome my listeners to disabuse me of that and send me example after example of successful field grade and flag officers in the U.S. Armed Forces, 19th century, 20th century, 21st century, who have defied the odds. Remember, Colonel John Boyd retired as Colonel John Boyd. And despite the fact that he was probably one of the most revelatory and important strategic thinkers of the late 20th century, could not become a flag officer. Now, there is a conceit with that, especially in the American Armed Forces. The American Armed Forces are very industrial. And because they're very industrial, they have it in themselves to take an almost um, industrial attitude to the rearing, mentoring, coaching, and nurturing of officers to get to flag grade, to become a general or an admiral. So what happens? What happens with the Pentagon and this mass industrial army that we have is that once one is in the service, having been in the service myself as a middling performer, is uh, you're going to have to have a perfect record. If you have one blemish in your efficiency reports and your officer performance reports, you're done. You cannot become a flag officer. So imagine in the vast bureaucracy that is the U.S. Armed Forces in this case, what would that perverse incentive be? That perverse incentive would be risk aversion. It would also be groupthink. It would also be making sure that you're not sticking your head out in a fashion that causes the superiors or senior officers above you to start playing whack-a-mole because maybe you're rocking the boat, you're coming up with new ideas that they really don't care for. Now, by the way, are there exceptions that, that I've, I've discovered? Indeed, you have Hyman Rickover, the father of the American nuclear navy, a guy who I would say, pun intended, had a radioactive mind. I mean, the guy was absolutely one in 10 million brilliant he gave us the nuclear navy, not only through his his pluck and his brilliance, but also through his exactitude, his determination to have that kind of perfectionism used by his own underlings, and of course in the nuclear submarine navy. You know, you've got maybe some others. I don't know who they would be. As as I said earlier, uh, please, I, I urge my listeners send me an email at cgpodcast at pm.me telling me about those American eccentrics and, and others that I, uh, I may have missed. I'd, I'd love to uh, wrap my head around that and do some research and, and see if I can figure it out. But don't send Smedley Butler. And I agree with you if you say Smedley Butler. Now the English, the English have a gift for embracing their eccentrics. Lawrence, of course, is Exhibit A. And Lawrence is who we've been talking about. What are some others? Uh, look at Ord Wingate, a key soldier, leader, and allied coalition maker in the China-Burma-India theater during World War II. 
Sometimes, apparently, he would even have staff meetings naked in his bed. You look at Lieutenant Colonel John Malcolm Thorpe Fleming Churchill, Longbow and Claymore credited during World War II with one of the only Longbow kills during the entirety of the war. I had mentioned Hyman Rickover. Uh, you know, Norman Dixon, he's a psychologist, and he went over 11 leaders that he thought were eccentric, unconventional, among whom are the Duke of Wellington, Napoleon, Horatio Nelson, uh, General Lord Allenby, who was Lawrence's boss, most certainly. I think one can say that Rommel and Zhukov, the marshal during World War II, were certainly eccentrics. As a matter of fact, Zhukov was one of the only generals to not only survive the purges, but to openly stand up to Stalin. There was one meeting where he was talking about retreat being necessary during certain portions. He's the chief of staff of the Russian Red Army at the time. And uh, he says something Stalin doesn't like, and Stalin reprimands him for it. Zhukov says, uh, demote me and make me a field commander in the east. I'll go take care of business. And he is demoted and does precisely that. Of course, Zhukov was instrumental in that earlier 1943 to 1945 renaissance in the Russian army that allowed them to best the Germans. And by the way, that allowed them to, in August 1945 to best the Japanese. What is it about these folks that is so curious? For instance, there was a gentleman, and those of you who have seen A Bridge Too Far about, a great movie, by the way, very entertaining. Uh, Bridge Too Far, you have Lieutenant Colonel Frost with an airborne battalion who captures the head of a bridge during the airborne insertions to capture bridgeheads and wait to join up with land forces that are on their way to link with them. There's a fellow by the name of Digby Tatham Water. Now, of course, what I always find has inside so fascinating about Tatham Warters that so many Brits like to have those hyphenated names. Here in the West, I, I, I find it curious among feminists where they will take on not only their husband's name when they wed, but they will retain the name that they came into the marriage with, thinking that that is a feminine independent spark when what they've actually done is double patriarch myself. But that's one of those mysteries that we don't need to plumb in this podcast. So he's the fellow who was asked during the, uh, during the movie, and, and the same thing, when I read Frost's account, it's, it's rather, he carries an umbrella instead of a rifle. He's an aide-de-camp to Frost. And, and Frost says, uh, you know, why, why, why Digby, why, why do you carry that umbrella? To which he responds, because I want all of them to know I'm an Englishman. Eccentric, yes. Uh, splendid, yes. A ripping good yarn, absolutely. We all remember that great line in A Bridge Too Far where the Germans come under the white flag trying to go to this beleaguered and besieged shrinking paratroop company plus that is at the bridgehead asking them to surrender to which... Lieutenant Colonel Frost responds, and I paraphrase, Oh no, we can't accept your surrender because we haven't the facilities to hold you. That's authentic from the account, so I thought that that's, uh, that's quite plucky, and I really enjoyed it. So again, 
to eccentrics. Could eccentrics make for more success in this long line, for instance, of American losses since 1945? I think that the armed forces of the United States could do with a lot of overhaul across the board. Let's become more net-centric and not as program and 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 platform centric as we are. Let's uh, take ADRP and ADP 3.0 Mission Command, which is based on German Auftragstaktik, which means that the German army during World War II, actually 1805 to 1945, embraced that very notion of Mission Command, where what they did was they, with their commissioned officers, they embedded them with a trust where if I am a lieutenant in the German army, I will know the intent of the mission four levels up instead of the conventional three levels up, which is the way it is in the American and allied armed forces. What that means is that, let's suppose you're a platoon leader. So you know your company commanders, you know your battalion commanders, and you know your brigade commander's intent under which he can have three to five battalions. If all of those men above you as the lieutenant in a platoon are, uh, they all assume room temperature, and you were the only officer left standing, tactic mission command made it so that using his character, pluck, knowledge, and context of the situation in front of him could continue to fight that organization either to the last man or to victory. There's a lot to be said for that. And as a matter of fact, one could use that to almost leverage eccentricity to the positive. Now, can, can there be negative attributes to eccentricity? Sure. Uh, those of us who've been in the military, we don't like people who don't bathe. We don't like people who go AWOL. We don't like people who cause such consternation in the organization from platoon to brigade to regiment that you were in that it not only affects good order and discipline, but ultimately affects the combat effectiveness and utility of the very organization itself. I'm not talking about engaging eccentrics who are in antisocial behavior that causes them to not lead to military victories and not bolster and optimize military effectiveness. I'm talking about people like my spirit animal, Raymond Spruance, four-star admiral, should have been a five-star admiral during World War II, clearly autistic, clearly brilliant, clearly eccentric. Look at this. I've discovered a, um, a flag officer who just so happened to be an eccentric. Uh, his flagship was the Indianapolis. Yes, that very same Indianapolis. That is the stuff of lore from the movie Jaws to the movie of the same name where having delivered the nuclear device, it was on its way home, got torpedoed by a Japanese submarine, I think, and uh, a number of the folks in the water suffered shark attacks of a degree that has not been seen since that time. Uh, Raymond Spruance, Admiral Raymond Spruance, wasn't on the ship at the time. He had, uh, he had gone on to another ship, and it was used for that very thing. Spruance was a curious cat, super intelligent, but you could see when I, as a guy on the spectrum, when I read about Spruance in either his autobiography or biographies or memoirs that have been done about him, I clearly see who he was and what he was about. And I think even Chester Nimitz may have unconsciously 
knew that, but knew that he could leverage that brilliance, intelligence, independence, quick thinking, and dispassionate objectivity for a commander like himself to do the great things that he did during the entirety of the Naval War in the Pacific. So there, I found one. I accidentally ran across a flag officer in the U.S. Armed Forces who was an eccentric, and I would ask my listeners to uh, send me any that I've missed. And also, I'd like to put out a call. I think if the American Armed Forces and the Allied Armed Forces were to be a little bit more patient and a little bit more maybe even tolerant of eccentric behavior, especially when it comes to irregular warfare, asymmetric warfare, gray zone warfare, hybrid warfare. We need those curious cats who were in the OSS, in the SOE, and some of those successors to the services after World War II to do the things and bend the rules and make it so that maybe, maybe sometime before the end of this century, America can win a conflict. Well, that concludes this episode. With the next episode, I hope to be talking about Lawrence's early military adventures and then uh, more interesting episodes in the future. Again, please accept my apology for being tardy in getting this episode out by 24 hours. That's on me. And uh, you can reach me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. And I thank you for your solicitation and listenership. This is Bill, out.